Chapter Five of New Treasure Seekers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbit. Chapter Five: The New Antiquaries. This really happened before Christmas, but many authors go back to bygone years for whole chapters, and I don't see why I shouldn't. It was one Sunday, the something Sunday in Advent, I think, and Denny and Daisy and their father and Albert's uncle came to dinner, which is in the middle of the day, on that day of rest, and the same things to eat for grown-ups and us. It is nearly always roast beef and Yorkshire, but the puddings and vegetables are brightly variegated, and never the same two Sundays running. At dinner someone said something about the coat of arms that is on the silver tankards which once, when we were poor and honest, used to stay at the shop, having the dents slowly taken out of them for months and months. But now they are always at home, and are put at the four corners of the table every day, and any grown-up who likes can drink beer out of them. After some talk of the sort you don't listen to, in which bends and leoncels and ghouls and things played a promising part, Albert's uncle said that Mr. Turnbull had told him something about that coat of arms being carved on a bridge somewhere in Cambridgeshire, and again the conversation wandered into things like Albert's uncle had talked about to the Maidstone Antiquarian Society the day they came over to see his old house in the country, and we arranged the time-honored Roman remains for them to dig up. So hearing the words king-post and mullion and moulding and underpin, Oswald said we might go, and we went, and took our dessert with us, and had it in our own common room, where you can roast chestnuts with a free heart, and never mind what your fingers get like. When we first knew Daisy we used to call her the White Mouse, and her brother had all the appearance of being one too, but you know how untruthful appearances are, or else it was that we taught him happier things, for he certainly turned out quite different in the end, and she was not a bad sort of kid, though we never could quite cure her of wanting to be ladylike. That is the beastliest word there is, I think, and Albert's uncle says so too. He says if a girl can't be a lady it's not worth while to be only like one. She'd better let it alone and be a free and happy bounder. But all this is not what I was going to say, only the author does think of so many things besides the story, and sometimes he puts them in. This is the case with Thackeray and the Religious Tract Society and other authors, as well as Mrs. Humphrey Ward only I don't suppose you have ever heard of her, though she writes books that some people like very much. But perhaps they are her friends. I did not like the one I read about the baronet. It was on a wet Sunday at the seaside, and nothing else in the house but Bradshaw and Elsie, or like a, or I shouldn't have. But what really happened to us before Christmas is strictly the following narrative. I say, remarked Denny, when he had burned his fingers with a chestnut that turned out a bad one after all, and such is life, and he had finished sucking his fingers and getting rid of the chestnut, about these antiquaries? Well, what about them? said Oswald. He always tries to be gentle and kind to Denny, because he knows he helped to make a man out of the young mouse. I shouldn't think, said Denny, that it was so very difficult to be one. I don't know, said Dicky. You have to read very dull books, and an awful lot of them, and remember what you read, what's more. I don't think so, said Alice. That girl who came with the antiquaries, the one Albert's uncle said was upholstered in red plush-like furniture, she hadn't read anything, you bet. Dora said, 
You ought not to bet, especially on a Sunday. And Alice altered it to, You may be sure. Well, but what then? Oswald asked Denny. Out with it, for he saw that his youthful friend had got an idea and couldn't get it out. You should always listen patiently to the ideas of others, no matter how silly you expect them to be. I do wish you wouldn't hurry me so, said Denny, snapping his fingers anxiously. And we tried to be patient. Why shouldn't we be them? Denny said at last. He means antiquaries, said Oswald to the bewildered others. But there's nowhere to go and nothing to do when we get there. The dentist, so called for short, his real name being Dennis, got red and white, and drew Oswald aside to the window for a secret discussion. Oswald listened as carefully as he could, but Denny always buzzes so when he whispers. Right-o, he remarked, when the confiding of the dentist had got so that you could understand what he was driving at. Though you're being shy with us now, after all we went through together in the summer, is simply skittles. Then he turned to the polite and attentive others, and said, You remember that day we went into Bexley Heath with Albert's uncle? Well, there was a house, and Albert's uncle said a clever writer lived there, and in more ancient years that chap in history, Sir Thomas What's-his-name, and Denny thinks he might let us be antiquaries there. It looks a ripping place from the railway. It really does. It's a big fine house, and splendid garden, and a lawn with a sundial, and the tallest trees anywhere but here. But what could we do? said Dicky. I don't suppose he'd give us tea, though such, indeed, had been our hospitable conduct to the antiquaries who came to see Albert's uncle. Oh, I don't know, said Alice. We might dress up for it, and wear spectacles, and we could all read papers. It would be lovely, something to fill up the Christmas holidays, the part before the wedding, I mean. Do let's. All right, I don't mind. I suppose it would be improving, said Dora. We should have to read a lot of history. You can settle it. I'm going to show Daisy our bridesmaids' dresses. It was, alas, too true. Albert's uncle was to be married but shortly after, and it was partly our faults, though that does not come into this story. So the two D's went to look at the clothes, girls like this, but Alice, who wishes she had never consented to be born a girl, stayed with us, and we had a long and earnest counsel about it. One thing, said Oswald, it can't possibly be wrong, so perhaps it won't be amusing. Oh, Oswald, said Alice, and she spoke rather like Dora. I don't know what you mean, said Oswald, in lofty scorn. What I mean to say is that when a thing is quite sure to be right, it's not so... Well, I mean to say, there it is, don't you know, and if it might be wrong and isn't, it's a score to you, and if it might be wrong and is, as so often happens, well, you know yourself, adventures sometimes turn out wrong that you didn't think were going to, but seldom or never the uninteresting kind, and Dicky told Oswald to dry up, which of course no one stands from a younger brother, but though Oswald explained this at the time, he felt in his heart that he has sometimes said what he meant with more clearness. When Oswald and Dicky had finished, we went on and arranged everything. Everyone was to write a paper and read it. If the papers are too long to read while we're there, said Noel, we can read them in the long winter evenings when we are grouped along the household hearthrug. I shall do my paper in poetry about Agincourt. Some of us thought Agincourt wasn't fair, because no one could be sure about any knight who took part in that well-known conflict, having lived in the Red House, because she said it would be precious dull if we all wrote about nothing but Sir Thomas, what do you call him, whose real name in history Oswald said he would find out, 
and then write his paper on that world-renowned person, who is a household word in all families. Denny said he would write about Charles I, because they were just doing that part at his school. "'I shall write about what happened in 1066,' said H.O. "'I know that.' Alice said, "'If I write a paper, it will be about Mary, Queen of Scots.' Dora and Daisy came in just as she said this, and it transpired that this ill-fated but good-looking lady was the only one they either of them wanted to write about. So Alice gave it up to them, and settled to do Magna Carta, and they could settle something between themselves for the one who would have to give up Mary Queen of Scots in the end. We all agreed that the story of that lamented wearer of pearls and black velvet would not make enough for two papers. Everything was beautifully arranged, when suddenly H.O. said, "'Supposing he doesn't let us.' "'Who doesn't let us what?' "'The Red House Man. Read the papers at his Red House.' This was, indeed, what nobody had thought of, and even now we did not think any one could be so lost to proper hospitableness as to say no. Yet none of us liked to write and ask, so we tossed up for it, only Dora had feelings about tossing up on Sunday, so we did it with a hymn-book instead of a penny. We all won except Noel, who lost, so he said he would do it on Albert's uncle's typewriter, which was on a visit to us at the time, waiting for Mr. Remington to fetch it away to mend the M. We think it was broken through Albert's uncle writing Margaret so often, because it is the name of the lady he was doomed to be married by. The girls had got the letter the Maidstone Antiquarian Society and Field Club secretary had sent to Albert's uncle. H.O. said they kept it for a momentum of the day, and we altered the dates and names in blue chalk, and put in a piece about might we skate on the moat, and gave it to Noel, who had already begun to make up his poetry about Agincourt, and so had to be shaken before he would attend. And that evening, when father and our Indian uncle and Albert's uncle were seeing the others on the way to Forest Hill, Noel's poetry and pencil were taken away from him, and he was shut up in father's room with the Remington typewriter, which we had never been forbidden to touch. And I don't think he heard it much, except quite at the beginning, when he jammed the S and the J, and the thing that means percent, so that they stuck, and Dicky soon put that right with a screwdriver. He did not get on very well, but kept on writing M-O-R-7-E-H-O-A-S-5, or M-O-R-D-6-M-H-O-V-C-E, on new pieces of paper, and then beginning again, till the floor was strewn with his remains. So we left him at it, and went and played celebrated painters, a game even Dora cannot say anything about on Sunday, considering the Bible kind of pictures most of them painted. And much later, the library door having banged once and the front door twice, Noel came and said he had posted it, and already he was deep in poetry again, and had to be roused when requisite for bed. It was not till next day that he owned that the typewriter had been a fiend in disguise, and that the letter had come out so odd that he could hardly read it himself. The hateful engine of destruction wouldn't answer to the bit in the least, he said, and I'd use nearly a waste-paper basket of father's best paper, and I thought he might come in and say something, so I just finished it as well as I could and corrected it with the blue chalk, because you'd bagged that BB of mine, and I didn't notice what name I'd signed till after I'd licked the stamp. The hearts of his kind brothers and sisters sank low, but they kept them up as well as they could, and said, What name did you sign? and Noel said, Why, Edward Turnbull, of course, like at the end of the real letter. You never crossed it out like you did his address. 
No, Oswald said, witheringly. You see, I did think whatever else you didn't know, I did think you knew your own silly name. Then Alice said Oswald was unkind, though you see was not, and she kissed Noel and said she and he would take turns to watch for the postman, so as to get the answer, which of course would be subscribed on the envelope with the name of Turnbull instead of Bastable, before the servant could tell the postman that the name was a stranger to her. And next evening it came, and it was very polite and grown up, and said we should be most welcome, and that we might read our papers and skate on the moat. The Red House has a moat, like the moat house in the country, but not so wild and dangerous. Only we never skated on it, because the frost gave out the minute we had got leave to. Such is life, as the sparks fly upwards. The last above is called a moral reflection. So now, having got leave from Mr. Redhouse, I won't give his name, because he is a writer of worldly fame, and he might not like it, we set about writing our papers. It was not bad fun, only rather difficult, because Dora said she never knew which encyclo volume she might be wanting, as she was using Edinburgh, Mary, Scotland, Bothwell, Holywell, and France, and many others, and Oswald never knew which he might want, owing to his not being able exactly to remember the distinguished and deathless other appellation of Sir Thomas Thingamy, who had lived in the Red House. Noel was up to the ears in Agincourt, yet that made but little difference to our destiny. He is always plunged in poetry of one sort or another, and if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. This, at least, we insisted on having kept a secret, so he could not read it to us. H.O. got very inky the first half-holiday, and then he got some sealing-wax and a big envelope from father, and put something in and fastened it up, and said he had done his. Dicky would not tell us what his paper was going to be about, but he said it would not be like ours, and he let H.O. help him by looking on while he invented more patent screws for ships. The spectacles were difficult. We got three pairs of the uncles, and one that had belonged to the housekeeper's grandfather, but nine pairs were needed, because Albert next door mooshed in one half-holiday and wanted to join, and said if we'd let him he'd write a paper on the constitutions of Clarendon, and we thought he couldn't do it, so we let him. And then, after all, he did. So at last Alice went down to Bennett's in the village, that we are such good customers of, because when our watches stop we take them there, and he lent us a lot of empty frames on the instinctive understanding that we would pay for them if we broke them, or let them get rusty. And so all was ready, and the fatal day approached, and it was the holidays. For us, that is, but not for father, for his business never seems to rest by day and night, except at Christmas and times like that. So we did not need to ask him if we might go. Oswald thought it would be more amusing for father if we told it to him all in the form of an entertaining anecdote afterwards. Denny and Daisy and Albert came to spend the day. We told Mrs. Blake Mr. Redhouse had asked us, and she let the girls put on their second-best things, which are coats with capes and red tam-o'-shanters. These capacious coats are very good for playing highwaymen in. We made ourselves quite clean and tidy. At the very last we found that H.O. had been making marks on his face with burnt matches, to imitate wrinkles, but really it only imitated dirt, so we made him wash it off. Then he wanted to paint himself red like a clown, but we had decided that spectacles were to be our only disguise, and even those were not to be assumed till Oswald gave the word. No casualist observer could have thought that the nine apparently light-headed and careless party who now wended their way to Blackheath Station, 
looking as if they were not up to anything in particular, were really an antiquarian society of the deepest dye. We got an empty carriage to ourselves, and halfway between Blackheath and the other station Oswald gave the word, and we all put on the spectacles. We had our antiquarian papers of lore and researched history in exercise-books, rolled up and tied with string. The station-master and porter, of each of which the station boasted but one specimen, of each of which the station boasted but one specimen, looked respectfully at us as we got out of the train, and we went straight out of the station, under the railway arch, and down to the green gate of the red house. It has a lodge, but there is no one in it. We peeped in at the window, and there was nothing in the room but an old beehive and a broken leather strap. We waited in the front for a bit, so that Mr. Redhouse could come out and welcome us, like Albert's uncle did, the other antiquaries, but no one came, so we went round the garden. It was very brown and wet, but full of things you didn't see every day. Furs summer-houses, for instance, and a red wall all round it, with holes in it that you might have walled up heretics in in the olden times. Some of the holes were quite big enough to have taken a very small heretic. There was a broken swing, a fish-pond, but we were on business, and Oswald insisted on reading the papers. He said, "'Let's go to the sundial. It looks drier there. My feet are like ice-houses.' It was drier, because there was a soaking wet green lawn around it, and round that a sloping path made of little squares of red and white marble. This was quite waterless, and the sun shone on it, so that it was warm to the hands, though not to the feet, because of boots. Oswald called on Albert to read first. Albert is not a clever boy. He is not one of us, and Oswald wanted to get over the constitutions. For Albert is hardly ever amusing, even in fun, and when he tries to show off it is sometimes hard to bear. Clarendon, sometimes called Clarence, had only one constitution. It must have been a very bad one, because he was killed by the butt of Malmsey. If he had had more constitutions or better ones, he would have lived to be very old. This is a warning to everybody. To this day none of us know how he could, and whether his uncle helped him. We clapped, of course, but not with our hearts, which were hissing inside us, and then Oswald began to read his paper. He had not a chance to ask Albert's uncle what the other name of the world-famous Sir Thomas was, so he had put him in as Sir Thomas Blank, and make it up being a very strong on scenes that could be better imagined than described, and, as we knew that the garden was five hundred years old, of course he could bring in any eventful things since the year 1400. He was just reading the part about the sundial, which he had noticed from the train when we went to Bexley Heath. It was rather a nice piece, I think. Most likely this sundial told the time when Charles I was beheaded, and recorded the death-devouring progress of the great plague and the fire of London. There is no doubt that the sun often shone even in these devastating occasions, so that we may picture Sir Thomas Blank telling the time here and remarking, "'Oh, crikey!' These last words are what Oswald himself remarked. Of course, a person in history would never have said them. The reader of the paper had suddenly heard a fierce, woodeny sound, like giant single-sticks, terrifyingly close behind him, and looking hastily round, he saw a most angry lady, in a bright blue dress with fur on it, like a picture, and very large wooden shoes, which had made the single-stick noise. Her eyes were very fierce, and her mouth tight shut. She did not look hideous, but more like an avenging sprite or angel, though of course we knew she was only mortal, so we took off our caps. 
A gentleman also bounded toward us, over some vegetables, and acted as reserve support to the lady. Her voice, when she told us we were trespassing and it was a private garden, was not so furious as Oswald expected from her face, but it was angry. H.O. said at once, it wasn't her garden, was it? But of course we could see it was, because of her not having any hat or jacket or gloves, and wearing those wooden shoes to keep her feet dry, which no one would do in the street. So then Oswald said we had leave, and showed her Mr. Redhouse's letter. But that was written to Mr. Turnbull, she said, and how did you get it? Then Mr. Redhouse wearily begged us to explain. So Oswald did, in that clear, straightforward way some people think he has, and that no one can suspect for an instant. And he ended by saying how far from comfortable it would be to have Mr. Turnbull coming with his thin mouth and his tight legs, and that we were bastables and much nicer than the tight-legged one, whatever she might think. And she listened, and then she quite suddenly gave a most jolly grin, and asked us to go on reading our papers. It was plain that all disagreeableness was at an end, and, to show this even to the stupidest, she instantly asked us to lunch. Before we could politely accept, H.O. shoved his oar in, as usual, and said he would stop, no matter how little there was for lunch, because he liked her very much. So she laughed, and Mr. Redhouse laughed, and she said they wouldn't interfere with the papers, and they went away and left us. Of course Oswald and Dicky insisted on going on with the papers, though the girls wanted to talk about Mrs. Redhouse, and how nice she was, and the way her dress was made. Oswald finished his paper, but later he was sorry he had been in such a hurry, because after a bit Mrs. Redhouse came out, and said she wanted to play too. She pretended to be a very ancient antiquary, and was most jolly, so that the others read their papers to her, and Oswald knows she would have liked his paper best, because it was the best, though I say it. Dickies turned out to be all about the patent screw, and how Nelson would not have been killed if his ship had been built with one. Daisy's paper was about Lady Jane Grey, and hers and Dora's were exactly alike, the dullest by far, because they had got theirs out of books. Alice had not written hers, because she had been helping Noel to copy his. Denny's was about King Charles, and he was very grown up and fervent about this ill-fated monarch and white roses. Mrs. Redhouse took us into the summer-houses, where it was warmer, and such is the wonderful architecture of the Redhouse gardens, that there was a fresh summer-house for each paper, except Noel's and H.O.'s, which were read in the stable. There were no horses there. Noel's was very long, and it began, This is the story of Agincourt. If you don't know it, you jolly well ought. It was a famous battle fair, and all your ancestors fought there, that is, if you come of a family old. The Bastables do, they were always very bold, and at Agincourt they fought as they ought, so we have been taught. And so on and so on, till some of us wondered why poetry was ever invented. But Mrs. Redhouse said she liked it awfully, so Noel said, you may have it to keep. I've got another one of it at home. I'll put it next to my heart, Noel, she said, and she did, under the blue stuff and fur. H.O.'s was last, but when we let him read it, he wouldn't, so Dora opened his envelope, and it was thick inside with blotting paper, and in the middle there was a page with 1066, William the Conqueror, and nothing else. Well, he said, I said I'd write all I knew about 1066, and that's it. I can't write more than I know, can I? The girls said he couldn't, but Oswald thought he might have tried. It wasn't worth blacking your face all over just for that, he said. 
but Mrs. Redhouse laughed very much, and said it was a lovely paper, and told her all she wanted to know about 1066. Then we went into the garden again and ran races, and Mrs. Redhouse held all our spectacles for us and cheered us on. She said she was the patent, automatic, cheering, winning post. We do like her. Lunch was the glorious end of the Morden House Antiquarian Society and Field Club's Field Day. But after lunch was the beginning of a real adventure, such as real antiquarians hardly ever get. This will be unrolled later. I will finish with some French out of a newspaper. Albert's uncle told it to me. I know it is right. Any of your own grown-ups will tell you what it means. Au prochain numéro, je vous promets des émotions. P.S. In case your grown-ups can't be bothered, émotion means sensation, I believe. End of chapter 5 Recording by Sibella Denton